0: Turn with me, please, in your Bible. And we read this morning again, only those verses in Judges chapter 9 from verse 7 through 21. And when they told it to Jotham he went and stood in the top of Mount Gerizim and lifted up his voice and cried and said unto them Hearken unto me ye men of Shechem that God may hearken unto you. The trees went forth a time to anoint a king over them and they said unto the olive tree reign thou over us but the olive tree said unto them should I leave my fatness wherewith by me honor God they honor God and man And go to be promoted over the trees. And the trees said to the fig tree. Come thou and reign over us. But the fig tree said unto them. Should I forsake my sweetness and my good fruit. And go to be promoted over the trees. Then said the trees under the vine, Come thou, and reign over us. And the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine, which cheereth God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? Then said all the trees under the bramble, Come thou, and reign over us. And the bramble said unto the trees. If in truth he anoint me king over you. Then come and put your trust in my shepherd. And if not let fire come out of the bramble. And devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore. This is. Jotham now speaking to Israel. Not in the fable, but of his own words. Now therefore, if ye have done truly and sincerely, in that ye have made Abimelech king, and if ye have dealt well with Jerubaal and his house, and have done unto him according to the deserving of his hands, and then there's this parenthetical, verse 17 and 18 for my father fought for you and adventured his life far and delivered you out of the hand of Midian and ye are risen up against my father's house this day and have slain his sons three score and ten persons upon one stone and have made Abimelech the son of his handmaid king over the men of Shechem because he is your brother if ye then have dealt truly and sincere with Jerubah Baal, and with his house this day, then rejoice ye in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech, and devour the men of Shechem, and the house of Milo, and let fire come out from the men of Shechem, and from the house of Milo, and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech his brother. Turn with me, if you will, again in your hymn book, number 1152-1152. Stand with me, please, and we sing together. Shun, lest me be banished from thy face And evermore undone Thank you. Be seated. Jotham's Fable, or if you prefer, the title over this section may well be, The Republic of Trees. In our last message from this chapter, we looked at the record of that Incomprehensibly vile fratricide committed by Abimelech, the bastard son of Gideon, through his pagan concubine. I pointed out that she was nothing more and nothing less than a remaining. Canaanite, which ought never to have been left remaining, but she was, and he took her. And by her she had this bastard son, Abimelech, and we saw that. And then we saw in this chapter the subsequent Miscarriage of all reason. That's the only way I thought long and hard. I know no better way to describe what we find in verses one through six of this ninth chapter than a complete miscarriage of all reason. In that carrying out of his coronation as king, Of at least one tribe in Israel. The Shikamites. You'll remember. And I give it to you simply by way of. A very brief review. Gideon had 70 sons. By many different wives. And by a concubine he had one called Abimelech. This bastard son, being an ambitious mind, made use of his mother's relations to impress the minds of the Shechemites with an idea that all the 70 sons of Gideon would be so many petty tyrants among them, which was a complete and total lie, but he convinced them of it. And he convinced them that it would be better for them to have one king over them rather than so many, and that if they were of that opinion, they would do better to choose him who was related to them than any of the others who had no particular interest in their welfare. And having thus insinuated himself into the favor of the Shechemites, He prevailed on them to supply him with the money out of the treasure of baal Pirith, their idol. And with that money he hired what the scripture calls vain and light persons to go with him and murder all 70 of Gideon's legitimate sons. Simeon said, what an awful proof is this of the cruel nature of ambition which could insinuate him to such, could instigate him to such an inhuman act, and of the ease with which instruments may be readily procured to perpetuate any evil that the human heart can conceive. The deliberation with which this bloody man executed his project Was truly astonished. One would have supposed at least. That he would murder them all hastily in their beds. But as though he delighted in that accursed work. He brought them all forth and slew them all on one stone. Jotham alone the youngest of them all escaped. And when he was informed that Abimelech had been made king, he availed himself of an opportunity which this public meeting of the Shikamites afforded him to stand on Mount Gerizim where we begun our reading this morning and address the principal inhabitants of that city. And so we have in our text this morning that address. All of this horror and all of the future tragedies which it fostered, all of these horrendous events were the fruit of one singular fault. Men would not have Jehovah reign over them. This is the underlying foul foundation underneath this entire enterprise. Gideon had said, I will not rule over you. My sons will not rule over you. My sons' sons will not rule over you. Jehovah shall rule over you. And they would not have it. Can I say to you from that comment that all of the tragedies that you see around you every day, all of the tragedies that you see on your newscasts, all of the tragedies you read about in your newspaper, or that you hear from your neighbors, all of the tragedies of all of history to the present day, all of the fruit of this one malady, men will not have God reign over them. Dear old Rogers in 1625 said it this way. They could not be content with God's government. They could not be content with God governing them as he had done by many and raising up to them a judge in the troubles of their nations. They wanted to be like other nations to deliver them. But they would yield to be governed by one And have a king. Contrary to that which God had appointed. Which practice of theirs teaches us. That we soon grow weary of God's yoke. And of his ordinances. By obeying the which yet we might do well if we could see. And loathed we are that God should reign over us. Indeed, we say, we say in words and seem to be otherwise. When we pray that second and third petition. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But who really admits it? Who? Really admits it. The malady is this singular fault. They will not have God reign over them. Now, our new text that we take up this morning opens by telling us that Jotham, the only remaining legitimate son of Gideon, who had, by divine governance, survived this wholesale slaughter. Jotham, according to the purposes of God, received word of these proceedings in our verse 7, and received word of Shechem's appalling guilt in the appointment of Abimelech. Verse 7 says, And when they told it to Jotham, So then now taking advantage of this assemblage for his crowning, and taking advantage of the landscape to which he has fled, he rises out of his concealment, to address these gathered masses in a fable a fable inspired by God's Holy Spirit Jameson Fawcett and Brown help us to understand the landscape of this scene the theater if you please in which Jotham speaks when he says that The spot he chose was like the housetops. It was the public place of Shechem. And the parable drawn from the rivalry of the various trees was appropriate to the diversified foliage of the valley below that he was seeing. Eastern people are exceedingly fond of parables and use them for conveying reproofs which they could not give in any other way. The top of Gerizim, where Jotham stands, is not so high in the rear of the town as it is nearer to the plain. With a little exertion of the voice, he could easily have been heard by the people of the city. For the hill so overhangs the valley that a person from the side of the summit would have no difficulty in speaking to listeners At the base. Modern history records a case. In which soldiers on the hill. Shouted to the people in the city. And endeavored to instigate them. To an insurrection. There is something about the elastic atmosphere. Of an eastern clime. Which causes it to transmit sound. With wonderful clarity. And distinctness. And so with that historical node as to the setting, the environment, the scene, we see Jotham step out. So Jotham comes to this summit and to herald to this boisterous mass assembled in the valley below. Our text this morning contains the content of that address. I can hope to do no more this morning than to set before your eyes that scene and the words of this marvel of divine inspiration, this fable. But first, a word about fables. Many of the scholars that I shall be quoting even back to the earliest of terms, have used the word fable and the word parable somewhat interchangeably, as you saw in the reading that I gave you a moment ago of Simeon. Even, however, they are not exactly The same. And I'm sure that for us to glean the most from our studies in this text, I would wish us to take a moment to point out this distinction between a fable and a parable. Unger, in his extensive dictionary of Bible terms, quotes Trench, who said, In defining the difference between the parable and the fable, he writes, the parable is constructed to set forth a truth spiritual and heavenly. This, the fable with its value, is not. It is essentially of the earth and never lifts itself above the earth. In other words, it's a story simply about earthly things. It never has a higher aim than to inculcate maxims of prudent morality, industry, caution, foresight. While it can never be said that the fabulist is regardless of truth, since it's neither his intention to deceive when he attributes language and discourse to trees and birds and beasts, nor is anyone deceived by it. Yet this severer reverence for truth, which is habitual to the higher moral teacher, will not allow him to indulge, even in sporting with the truth, this temporary suspension of its law though upon agreement, or at least with tactic understanding. Therefore, he says, the great teacher, with a capital T, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great teacher by parables, therefore, allowed himself in no transgression of the established laws of nature, in nothing marvelous or anonymous. He presents to us no speaking trees or reasoning beasts and we should be at once conscious of an unfitness in his doing so. (laughs) You see the fable is distinguished from the parable because in the fable the law, strict laws of nature may be adjusted for the story. But Unger points out that our great teacher would not even allow himself that stretch of truth and restricts himself solely to parables. So much then for that technical difference, but we shall yet see its value in this text. As to this method of teaching in general that is fables and parables that was so common to Israel Simeon quoting another has said this The method of instructing by parables is of great antiquity. It obtained among the Jews from the earliest period of their history but the first that is recorded And indeed, the first extant in the world is that which we have just read. The peculiar excellence of that mode of instruction is that it arrests the attention more forcibly and conveys knowledge more easily than a train of reasoning could ever do. And convinces the judgment, convinces the judgment before that prejudice has had time to bar the entrance of truth into the mind. And thus it is so useful for children. The parable before us is exceeding beautiful and admirably adapted to the occasion on which it was spoken as I said. The use of parables and fables is so very useful in the teaching of children because of this fact, this fact that Simeon points out, that it teaches, it convinces the judgment before prejudice has had time to bar the entrance of truth. (laughs) Bush enlightens us further when he says... We have in this address of Jotham the oldest and one of the most beautiful stories on record. It is the nature of a fable to give tongues to trees and intelligence, life, and activity to all the parts of the animate and inanimate creation. The truth of such a fable lies in the instructions conveyed in it. The peculiar excellence of this mode of instruction, as he said before, is that it arrests the attention more forcibly and conveys knowledge more easily than a train of reasoning. Accordingly, it has happened that in the East especially, where the imagination and the whole mental temperament is more fervid and glowing than elsewhere, this veiled form of instruction has always been in high repute, whether in conveying wholesome truths to the ears of power, or inculcating lessons of wisdom and justice and duty upon the obtuse and unreasoning multitude. Mr. Roberts remarks that the people of the East are exceedingly addicted to Apollo, apollos and use them to convey instruction or reproof which with them could scarcely be done in any other way and so this mood our text this morning a great fable and so our lord adopting adapting himself to their peculiarities sends out this prophet, a prince turned prophet, this sole surviving son of Israel's rightful deliverer, and he heralds this glorious fable from the lofty heights of Gerizim. Someone has said that here Jotham rises from a prince to a prophet, indeed. Dr. Gill said, this is a fable, and a very fine and beautiful one indeed. It is fitly expressed to answer its design of the most ancient. It is of the most ancient of its kind, being made 700 years before the time of Aesop, So famous for his fables. And this. Says Dr. Gill. Not only does it precede Aesop By 700 years. But Gill says. And this. Exceeding anything. Ever written by him. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Greatest fable ever told. This as Simeon pointed out is the very first fable ever recorded and it is one of only two in the Bible. The other being found in 2 Kings 14 and verse 9 and that one being much shorter and less detailed than this. The Greeks later And we know that the Native Americans, even much later than that, employed animals, lions, bears, horses, etc., birds, employed animals for their fables, but in the only two Hebrew fables known to Scripture, there is the use only of the vegetable kingdom. I'll leave it to you theologians to work out why that might be. But it is so. But now our text begins and brings us here. Here to the profoundest moment in Israel's checkered history. Here to the astounding scene of appalling apostasy and unparalleled corruption. A scene no doubt of gaiety and revelry while the damnation of the whole nation hangs treacherously in the balances of God's judgment. A scene charged with emotion and every carnal passion. When to the shock and horror of all! In the midst of that scene, this unsuspected prophet steps out. No doubt, but that silence, deafening silence, falls over the whole valley as Jotham begins to speak. While there surely was not one present that day who expected to hear from God Hmm. the stench of blood still fresh in their nostrils no doubt and the garments of that vile pomp ceremony still wrapping their body jump them out and there's not one that will not hear all oh, can I tell you, when God speaks, there's none that will not hear. Can you truly say amen to that in your heart? I would ask my brethren in other pulpits and other places, I would ask my brethren, can you truly say amen to that? When God speaks, there's none that will not hear. Away with this foolish notion that God's voice can somehow be silenced. Can somehow be resisted. Can somehow be stifled. Can somehow be quieted. Away with that notion. When God speaks, there's none that will not hear. When God speaks, worlds are formed out of nothing. Hmm. When God speaks, mountains will be lighted on fire and the whole earth will tremble. Exodus 19, verse 10 and following. When God speaks, fire will come down out of the heavens and consume 50 men at a time. Twice in 2 Kings chapter 1. Or the earth will open up and swallow whole families. Number 16. When God speaks. When God speaks. It's the sound of mighty waters and thunder. Revelation through 2 On and on and on I could go through the scriptures. But I only mean for you to know this. God will be heard. God will be heard. And when God speaks, none will silence him. So in our record here, Jotham steps out. And all of Shechem hears him. Here's what? Well, first... First he hears this announcement that the only way they will be heard of God, the only hope they have of being heard by God is to be willing to hear instruction from him. Verse 7, and when they told it to Jotham, he went and stood in the top of Mount Gerizim. And he lifted up his voice and he cried and he said to them, Hearken unto me, ye men of Shechem, that God may hearken unto you. The only way they're going to be heard by God is for them to be willing to hear God. Is not this the consistent teaching of the Scripture? throughout. Proverbs Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 9 He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law even his prayer shall be abomination. God's not listening. God's not listening because you're not listening. God's not listening because you're not listening. This is the consistent teaching of Scripture. So then, what is it that he will teach them? Well, the answer is enshrined in this holy fable. We've read it already this morning. But allow Adersheim to briefly survey it for us. Adarsham said this brings us once more to the memorial of the veil. You remember that translation I suggested to you. The memorial of the veil which Joshua had set up when at the close of his last address the people had renewed their covenant with Jehovah. It was in this sacred spot that the citizens of Shechem and the whole house of Milo were now gathered to make Abimelech king close by behind it to the south rose Gerizim the Mount of Blessings on one of its escarpments which towers 800 feet above the valley Jotham the last survivor of Gideon's house watched the scene and now his rose, voice rose above the shouting of the people In that clear atmosphere, every word made its way to the listener below. It was a strange fable, he told, peculiarly of the East, that land of parables and a language so clear and forcible that it stands unique. It is about the Republic of Truth. Who are about to elect a king. In turn the olive tree. The fig tree and the vine. The three great representatives of fruit bearing trees in Palestine. In turn each is asked. But each refuses. For each has its own usefulness. And inquires with wonder. Am I then to lose my fatness? or my sweetness, or my wine, and go to flutter above the trees? I'll explain that that later to you in another message. The expressions, he says, are very pictorial as indicating on the one hand that such a rain could only be one of unrest and insecurity, a wavering or a fluttering above the trees, and that in order to attain this position of elevation above the other trees, a tree would require to be uprooted from its own soil and so lose what a fatness and sweetness and refreshment God had intended it to yield. Then those noble trees having declined this offer, and apparently all the others also, the whole of the trees next Turn to the thorn bush, which yields no fruit, can give no shadow, and only wounds those that take hold of it, which in fact is only fit for burning. The thorn bush itself seems scarcely to believe that such a proposal could seriously be made. <laughs> if in truth, it says, if in truth, That is, if you're sincere, you anoint me king over you, come, put your trust in my shadow. But if not, that is, if you fear to do so or else you find your hopes disappointed, then let fire come out from the thorn bush and devour the cedars of Lebanon. The application of the parable was so evident that it scarcely needed the poignant sentences in which Jotham In conclusion, set before the people their conduct in its real character. Thus does Adersheim summarize this text, but much more to my taste is another which carries us to greater heights when he says this. Among the many dramatic scenes which invest the pages, of the Holy Scripture with such singular interest and give them such a hold upon the mind of all who read them with intelligence. Perhaps none is more striking than that depicted in the fifth chapter of the prophet Daniel. You remember a gorgeous spectacle is there presented to our view. By the way, I preach from that text in the jail quite often just because of this singular effect that he's fixing to describe. He says a gorgeous spectacle is there presented to our view in Daniel 5. The monarch of one of those mighty oriental monarchies which were a fearful embodiment of the irresponsible human power over the lives and destinies of millions was sitting in high state in the palace of his kingdom Round him were a thousand of the highest nobles of his empire. The walls of the banqueting hall were adorned with symbols of his royal power and the emblematic images of Babylon and Assyrian gods. Upon the king's table were placed the golden and silver vessels which had once been used in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, trophies of past victories. To feed his own pride with. To do homage to the gods of silver and gold, of brass and iron and wood and stone they had gathered. The wine sparkled in the goblets. The halls rang with hymns of blasphemous praise. Insolent murder and voluptuous luxury, security, power, pride of dominion, kept their high revel with audacious pomp. All faces were flushed with wine, all hearts beat high with self-confidence and arrogant success, and would one would have thought they held a lease of power and pleasure. For the term of eternity, the rebel was at its height when suddenly, but noiselessly, there came forth the fingers of a man's hand, and upon the wall just opposite the king's throne, on which the lamps were throwing their full glare of light, wrote these fatal words: "Mine, mine." T.K.L. U. Farson. The agony that passed over the king's face, the tumultuous terror of his heart, the smiting of his trembling knees together, the frightened cry of the astrologers and magicians, the breaking up of the festival, the consternation of the company were but the prelude of what would come next. What the sacred writer records with such Pithy brevity. And that night was Belshazzar the king of Chaldean's slain. You say, what has this to do with our text? The writer says, Not very different in its spirit, though dressed in such a different garb, is the moral of the history in the verses we just read. By treachery, by wholesale fratricide, by the help of the vainest and lightest in the land, the worthless of Abimelech had risen to that point of kingly power which his great and patriotic father had refused to occupy. He had sought and obtained the cooperation of the idolatrous party among the people. He had appealed to the self, selfishness of the Shechemites. He had freely scattered tribes. And by such means he had obtained the desire of his heart. All seemed safe and prosperous now. When from the heights of Mount Gerizim. A voice, a voice of ill omen, it might seem a prophetic voice, certainly a voice, big with unwelcome truth, rang in the streets of Shechem. The passerby the throng in the marketplace the base adherents and flatterers of the new-made king were startled by the sound and looking up to the rock which overhung their town saw Jotham the youngest son of their great benefactor and deliverer, Of him who had saved their country from slavery their people from Baal worship. They saw him there standing on the rocky ledge. With ready eloquence he caught their ear and fixed their attention in the words of verse 7. While he uttered his cutting rebuke and poured out his prophetic curse. Surely the sweet morsel in the mouths of successful conspirators must have turned to gall and wormwood as their own base ingratitude and treachery and the vileness of their worthless king thus gibbeted before their eyes. Surely their guilty hearts must have sunk within them as the sure consequence of their, their misdeeds was held before their eyes with such marvelous power of conviction in the simple words of a fable. It is this inevitable nemesis, this certainty that men will reap what they have sown, this exposition of the naked hideousness of wrongdoing, this vileness of sin, breaking through all the glitter of success and all the glare of present prosperity in a word, the just judgment of God written by the finger of God upon the wall, declared by the voice of God from the pulpits of his truth, this that men so obstinately closed their ears and shut their eyes to, but which the word of God so resolutely declares. God will be heard. God will be heard. God will be heard. Jotham steps out. On the ledge of Mount Gears. And suddenly. The revelry. Is stunned into silence. Someone later says this fable, fable has many striking touches of character which are very instructive. The forwardness and levity and empty self conceit, the love of power just in proportion to a person's unfitness to wield it. The utter unscrupulousness of a selfish ambition. The meanness of personal pride. The fickleness of men who have not the ballast of integrity to steady them. All of which, God willing, we shall see in this fable. God will be heard even in the simplicity of the fable. Turn there next week. Turn with me in your hymn book again, please. To stand with me. sing together number six hundred and eighty-six will you stand with me eight six hundred and eighty-six broad is the road that leads to death thousands walk together there wisdom shows a narrow path here and there traveling The road that leads to death and thousands walk The Redeemer's great command Nature must count her gold but draws If she were gain this heavenly land The fearful soul that tires and faints and walk the ways of God no more. Is but esteem almost the same. And makes its own destruction sure. Lord let not all my hopes be made create my heart entirely new which hypocrites could never attain which falls upon heaven